0: Can we go to Acts chapter 17, please? I've been um, enjoying Acts and reading Acts for the last couple of weeks, certainly maybe more than that, a month. And um, the last couple of times I've preached, I've I've preached out of this book. An amazing portion. I just want to share it with you. And then I've got 10 points out of what I share. But uh, I don't know if I'll get to all of them today. I think what I like to call this message, these men is these men have turned the world upside down. These men have turned the world upside down. I think an alternative title for this message could be Living Free from Religion. And you'll see as we go through what I mean. But Acts 17, the first nine verses, Luke writing, he says, Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in as was his custom, So there's fruit. Paul preaches preaches the Christ, uh, uh, preaches the Messiah, Jesus as Messiah, and it says there's there's a there's a lot of converts, all right. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, and they set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason seeking to bring them out into the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of his brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men have turned the world upside down and have come here also, and Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there's another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. Lord, I pray you would help me now as I preach, that I would preach only your heart. This would come, message would come with grace and with anointing. And Lord, I pray it would, it would bear much fruit into every single life and every single heart here this morning. You know, as I've been reading the book of Acts, it seems that wherever... Paul, Silas, Peter, wherever they went and they preached Christ in the New Testament, they preached Christ in the book of Acts, their message was accompanied by strife and disorder. Their message was accompanied by chaos. Their message was accompanied by rioting. And it seems that there was tension as they preached, and often before there was peace, there was chaos. And I began to ask myself as of the last month or so, why was that? What was the source of the tension? Really, when we look at the gospel, are we, are we wanting to say that the thing that should accompany the preaching of the Word of God is strife, tension, and mobs, and rioting? Is that really what we believe? Or is the, um, is the truth of the kingdom about righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit? And I'm throwing these out as questions this morning. Um, when the Jews in that portion we read, when they came and said, these people turned the world upside down, I've been asking myself, well, what about the kind of gospel that we preach? Is it turning anything upside down? <laughs> is it just maintaining the status quo? Is it making any difference to this community? Or, or is us gathering each week as a, as a believing community just kind of meeting with our mates and, and having a good time and feeling good, the goosebumps as we worship, and praying for some people to be healed, and that's all very well and good. But are we having any impact into the world? Is our gospel turning the world upside down? Is the gospel that we preach here turning your life upside down? Or is it just maintaining your life in a nice sort of middle-class way? Please hear my heart. I'm I'm just trying to ask some questions. I've been asking myself these questions. Why Why did the Jewish community feel so threatened by the gospel that Paul preached? So let's take a little look through um, the book of Acts. And I'm just going to mention some chapters. You can go and have a look for yourself and your own devotions. Write these things down if you'd like, or listen to the podcast, and go for your own study. Go and have a look and check out what I'm saying. Right from the beginning, Luke, who is the author of Acts, he presents the death of Jesus as a gross miscarriage of justice. Pilate did. He did sentence Jesus to death, absolutely. But if you go and read the story in Luke 23 and 24, he already, Pilate, had already pronounced Jesus not guilty. And then he goes against his better judgment in pressure to the mob. And Luke presents this as a miscarriage of justice. Secondly, if you go to Luke 23, for example, you'll read of Herod Antipas. And he agreed that all the charges brought against Jesus shouldn't be taken seriously, that they were not issues of politics. And so as you go through the book of Acts, and if you read, you'll see that all the way through Acts, the political officials, the civic authorities, both Gentile and Jewish, seem to show goodwill to Paul and his disciples and those that preach the gospel, and at the very least, admitted that there was no basis for the charges that were continually brought against these men as they preached the gospel. That's true in Cyprus, where where Mario comes from, a good Greek stock of Cyprus. All right. If you want to read with me, you're going to go to Acts 13. I'd just like to read a portion there because here we read of Paul and Barnabas, and they're speaking to the Cypriot proconsul. All right, they've gone on one of their journeys and they're speaking to one of the Cypriot proconsuls, and it says this from verse 7. He was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. So this man is hungry to hear the good news of Jesus. But it says, Elymas the magician, for that was his meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from faith. But Saul, who was called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at the magician and said, you son of the devil. <laughs> we are so nice, aren't we? we don't, we're don't. politically correct in every way. You'll never turn around to call anyone a son of the devil because we'd just be so scared that we'd get sued or whatever. But the Bible's clear. You're either children of light or you're a child of the darkness. I mean, that's what we believe. <laughs> that's what I believe. I was once a child of the devil and now I'm a child of God. <laughs> I'm not sort of halfway in between. The darkness is gone and the light has come. The old is gone and the new has come. Once I was just conforming my life to the prince of the air, now I'm salt and light to the community. Do you believe it? Good, because this is the gospel. The gospel is not gray in these areas. This is the gospel. You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of deceit and villainy, Will you not stop making crooked the straight part of the Lord? So he's saying, you're corrupting the message. You're trying to corrupt what I'm saying. And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. I I, I want some of that power in my life. It comes with the preaching of the gospel. And it says, immediately a mist came over him, darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking someone to lead him by the hand. Immediately he struck blind. He cannot see a thing. Little sentence now. Then the proconsul believed. <laughs> yeah. Then the proconsul believed. Oh, yes, I've seen now. Yeah, this power. This what you're saying is true. And he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. So there's a, there's an example from Cyprus. If you go through to Acts 16 in Philippi, you'll read that the chief magistrate apologizes to Paul and Silas because they've been illegally beaten and thrown in, pr- in prison. Acts 18 in Corinth, the proconsul, his name's Gallio. He sees the charges. Uh, he says the charges brought against Paul uh, were matters of internal Jewish law that got nothing to do with politics. He declares Paul guilty of uh, guiltless of any Roman law. Ephesus, which was the leading city of the Asia Minor, Acts 19. You can have a look from verse 31. The chief executive officer, and in fact, the, 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 the um, probably the chief engineer of the city absolves Paul of anything in the nature of pu- public sacrilege. He says, you've done nothing wrong. Paul's last visit to Judea during the reign of Festus and Felix, you can read of that in Acts 24. Both of them say there are no substance to the charges that have been brought against you by the Sanhedrin. King Agrippa agrees with Festus that Paul had done nothing wrong and that he should have been discharged. All the, ch- all the charges should have been discharged. But Paul has already appealed to Rome, and so he has to go, ro- go to Rome to await his uh, trial there. And even in Rome, Paul is free to minister while under house arrest. And what I'm just trying to drive at is the simple thing that throughout the book of Acts, Luke makes it absolutely clear that whenever there's strife and chaos, it's not due to the message that is being preached, it's due to opposition from the religious authorities of the day. And this is not an anti-Semitic message, this is an anti-religious message message, okay? And I want to make a stand against religion this morning in terms of this community, in terms of my own life, and in terms of our trust the true gospel. It was the priestly establishment. It was the Jews. It was the, the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees who both persecuted Jesus in the court and they persecuted Paul later. Most of the disturbances, if you read the Gospels were fermented by local Jew- Jewish communities who refused to accept the gospel, and as they refused to accept the gospel, they were annoyed when anyone else accepted the good news, and on that ba- basis, they, when Gentiles believed, they got really upset. So I want to just look at, briefly, a little cameo of the Sadducees, and to see why they might have been upset, a little cameo of the Pharisees, and then we're going to look it in terms of our own lives and say, God, is there any religion in me? Because <laughs> that's the important thing, all right? There were three groups of, of people in the New Testament that were trying to influence Jewish, the Jew, Jewish community. The one was the Pharisees, the other was the Sadducees. The third group was called the Essenes, who were more aesthetics. They removed themselves from the community, and they, um, they majored on uh, holiness and uh, purity. And, uh, you know, the, the, the Dead Sea Scrolls, they think, were written by the Essenes, and they were kind of a little bit on the outside of society. They, didn't, they weren't living in Jerusalem with all the common people. They were kind of like a little bit aesthetic and removed. A little bit monkish, if you like. Okay? So I don't want to speak about them too, today, too much today, but we can maybe look at that later. Now, the Sadducees were very interesting people. You see, and the high priest was a guy called Caiaphas. I'm sure you've learned that, know that name. But the Sadducees were wealthy. The Sadducees were landowners. The Sadducees were those with power and political influence in Jerusalem who owned land, who owned property, and they came from a long line of priests. It was in their lineage that they were the priests. And so they had a lot of material wealth and influence, all right? And there's a Jewish historian called Josephus. Anyone heard of Josephus? And he writes on the the, uh, history of the Jewish people. And he even says, as a Jew... He said that he says that the Sadducees were known for their unfriendliness, even to each other. They didn't like each other. They didn't get on well with each other. He also says that they were very unpopular with the common people. And thirdly, he says that they also were known to be cruel judges. See, that's what religion does to you. Always right. You so right, and a, any compassion in your heart is dissipated away and it comes to be all about being right. Who is right? Who is right? Who is right? And the Sadducees were right about everything, but they didn't have the heart of the gospel. And so when you read the story in Mark chapter 11, for example, and Mark 14, when Jesus comes into the temple, and he clears the temple, why do you think the Sadducees reacted so quickly and immediately and brought them before to be accused? Because it was their financial interest that was being undermined. They were the ones making the money out of making the money in the temple, out of the, the, the ritual sacrifices, selling the doves and the rams. They were making money. That's why they were so upset. And later, J- James, who's Jesus' brother, he's killed by a Sadducean priest. Chopped his head off. And the Sadducees only embraced the Pentateuch, the Old Testament, the five books of Moses, and that's why they, that explains why they did not believe in the resurrection. And that was another major stumbling block for them in the preaching of Jesus. And you can read in Mark 12, for example, Acts chapter 4, wherever the resurrection of the dead is mentioned, it's a big issue for the Sadducees because they didn't really believe in the resurrection of the dead. All right? And they majored on human responsibility. It is our responsibility to be holy before God. Does that sound familiar? Any of you been there that you feel responsible to be, for, to be holy before God? That it all depends on what you do? And so they emphasized the law. And they majored on the law and the Old Testament. Now, now the, the, the Pharisees, also very interesting. They lived in Jerusalem, and they were divided into three schools. The disciples of Shammai, Heliel, and a man called Gamaliel. Now, uh, Paul was a disciple of Gamaliel. And they were more concerned about the administration of the temple. They wanted to get everything right in the temple. So they were very, very concerned with how things ran in the temple. Also, they were quite pragmatic. And there was a genuine desire to help people in their everyday life. So they were very concerned, for example, that people should be tra- treated fe- fairly when they lent money. Or people should be... When people were having problems in relationship, that if there, if there was a, do- a divorce, it should be fair. And so they had a, set up a whole system of legislation... To Help fairness, so in that sense, they were, they, their heart was good, they were trying to help practically for people to live and people to get on and to be treated fairly. In fact, it says in Acts chapter 5 that Gamaliel, the, 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 the person that is mentioned in terms of Paul, was known for his wisdom, he was a very pr- pragmatic, wise man, and he really genuinely did, did, did um, help people. But you see, the Pharisees also they had a great influence over the local scribes because what would happen is that the scribes and the pharisees would decide on the theology what should be taught in the synagogues and then local scribes would implement that theology right that's why Jesus always says woe to you you scribes the ones that are actually doing the preaching and the pharisees the ones that are interpreting the law he says woe to both of you cuz you're putting loads on people all right and so they they interpreted what the scribes the scribes interpreted what the pharisees would preach, and they preached in the local synagogue. You can read that in Matthew 7, Matthew 23, Mark 2. And so in Mark chapter 3, where this new kid on the block, Jesus, comes into the synagogue, and he starts preaching with power and authority. The first ones to check out the situation are the Pharisees, and they send a delegation to check out what he's preaching, and his theology is a little bit different to theirs. And immediately they are upset, they are threatened, and if you read the account... He does amazing miracles. His people are getting healed and set free. And what do they say? He says, They say, your powers from Be- Beelzebub, from the devil. It's incredible. See, Jesus and his message was radically, radically different, radically offensive. It flew in their faces. If you read Jesus, he was largely indifferent to some of the law. For example, Jesus did not major on ritual washing. Why do you think that the Pharisees got so upset? Because he and his disciples didn't always wash themselves before they ate. Jesus would heal anyone at any time, including on the Sabbath. And what did the Pharisees say? No, 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 you can't do that. Don't don't heal anyone on the Sabbath. It's a time for rest. Don't do any work. Amazing! Doesn't that amaze you? Hey, his disciples wandered through the field collecting corn, and that was a problem for the Pharisees. They were very, very concerned for their personal ritual cleanliness and purity. And Jesus said for him that wasn't the main issue. In fact, so Jesus ignored the law in certain ways, and in other ways, he was even more radical in terms of the law, because you see, because of this thing of treating people fairly, The Pharisees had set up all these legislative things around lending money, and Jesus kind of went completely against that in Matthew chapter 5. He simply said, don't refuse anyone who asks you for money. Just give it to them. (laughs) Don't worry if you can even get it paid back. Just bless people. Just give them the money they need. That was an offense. I mentioned that one of the schools of um, this particular theology was a guy called Hillel. And um, in the Talmud, I'm actually quoting from the Talmud now, in Shabbat 31, verse 31a, it says this, What is hateful to you, do not to your neighbor. Okay, what is hateful to you, do not to your neighbor. That's the whole Torah, while the rest is a commentary on this, which you shall learn. That's a quote from the Torah, right? What does Jesus say? Jesus says in Matthew seven twelve, he says this, Whatever you wish, that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. You understand the difference? The one is centered on me, the other is centered on others. What Jesus was saying, is his is, is challenge was completely from a different place. He's saying, you are centered on yourself when you speak like that. And I'm saying to you a completely different system of thinking, of theology, everything about what I'm saying is different. This is not about you. This is about other people. Give yourself away. There's a universal love that I'm calling you to. In fact, I'm saying, don't even love those. love those that love you, but I'm asking you for more than that. I'm saying love even your enemies. That's what Jesus is saying. Man, it is profoundly, radically different. The Pharisees were so concerned with their personal, internal, self-righteous states. And you know, Paul quotes, uh, he was a Pharisee. He calls himself a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He was the top student of Gamaliel. He says this, he says, I declare myself to be blameless according to the law. You know, the Pharisees, you know, most of the Jews tithe, most of the Jews gave a tenth of what they, they, um, of their harvest and all that kind of stuff. But the Pharisees were so focused on being righteous that they even tithed on their garden herbs, on their dill, and their cumin, and their rosemary. They tithed on that. Some people fasted, some of the Jews fasted. What did did the Pharisees do? They made certain they fasted twice a week, ritualistically, legalistically, letting everyone know that they were fasting. That's why Jesus said, When you fast, don't let anyone know that you're fasting. What is the good in that? They were so concerned with purity that they would, if a, if a fly fell into their drink or mosquito fell into their drink, they would strain the whole drink to get the impurity out. That's why Jesus says in Mark 23, you strain the net out of your drinking cup, but you're putting loads on other people. And so they, what did the scribes and Pharisees do, they wouldn't sit with a sinner. So anyone who was a, a person who broke the law, according to their interpretation, they wouldn't even sit at the table with that person. What did Jesus do? He chose prostitutes before he chose the scribes. He chose tax collectors before he chose the Pharisees. That's why he got up their nose. Because he chose the sinners before he chose the self righteous and all these expressions, of, these expressions of ritualistic piety, that's really what it is. It's ritualistic piety, concerned with yourself, your own, own holiness, your own righteousness. They all come together in a little parable. If you want to read with me Luke 18, it's a, it's a parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Remember that parable? I'm going to read it. Don't worry to find it. I'll just read it. It says, are you guys with me? Yeah? told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. And the Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, I give a tithe of all I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven. And he beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man, which man? This man went down to his house justified, declared sinless, rather than the other, the self-righteous, finger-pointing Pharisee. That's a radical message. For anyone who exalts himself will be humbled, The one who humbles himself will be exalted. See The Pharisee was trying to distinguish himself from the tax collector on the basis of his behavior, the basis of his self-righteous behavior. And Jesus says, it's not even the point. You're missing the point completely. We are not even aiming at the same thing. It's interesting, though, because in other places, Jesus affirms giving tithes, Matthew 23. And he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, for you tithe on your mint, your dill, your cumin, But you have neglected the weightier matters of the law of justice, mercy, and righteousness. You should have done the former without neglecting the latter. In other words, your reason for giving is because of justice and love for others and mercy for those who don't have as much as you do. That's why you give, not to make yourself look self-righteous. Completely missing the point. Too loud. Okay. And you know Solomon. This this was this was the heart. This actually is the heart of what Jesus has been, uh, heart of what God had been trying to say to His people for centuries. Because if you read Ecclesiastes, it's written by Solomon, right? Can you go with me to Ecclesiastes eleven, just at the back of the New Testament? Just look in the index if you can't find it quick quickly. We're going to read six nine verses We're going to make some comments out of them. Ecclesiastes, written by Solomon, it says, he says this, he says, Cast your bread upon the water, for you will find it after many days. Give a portion to seven or even to eight, for you know not when disaster may happen on earth. If the clouds are full of rain, they may empty themselves on the earth. And if a tree falls to the south or to the north, in the place where the tree falls, there it will be. That's one of those confusing verses in the Bible. What does that mean? When the tree falls in the forest, there it will be. Okay, well, that's cool. He observes the wind, will not sow, and he who regards the clouds won't reap. You do not know the way the Spirit comes to the bones in the the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. In the morning you sow seed, and at evening withhold not your hand, for you do not know which will prosper, this or that, whether both alike, will be good. What is Solomon saying? He's saying something very basic. He's saying the same thing that Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6. Don't sound the trumpet when you give. Just sow your seed. Don't want to be seen by others to be doing charitable acts. Just your Father in heaven sees. Just sow your bread on the water. You know what he's he's saying? He's encouraging us, all of us that have, those that are rich, to do good to the poor. He's just saying, give it away, give it away. And he doesn't just say once. He says, do it six or seven times. In other words, it doesn't matter if you feel like it's even being lost. You just sow your seed, and in due time, God will bring the harvest. And then he says... um. Don't bother to look at the clouds. It, you know, there's, there's things that are saying, well, I shouldn't do this. There's a storm coming. There's clouds. There's the wind. If, says, if you look to those things, you're never going to sow. See, so you either have the, we have the heart to, to sow or we don't. And I believe that what, one of the things that God has been saying to all of us in this time of econo- economic downturn is that I can provide for you. I am your provider. I'm your source of provision. Isn't that true? Don't give up on doing what is, what is good, what is right. There are many hardships, but God says, don't let them distract you. What does Galatians 6 verse 9 say? It says, don't grow weary in doing good, for in due season you will reap. Don't get weary in doing good. I was just chatting with Helen in the car. We were talking about stuff, church stuff. You know, There's different people that have different styles. And everyone has a yuck factor to their style, right? So you might not like some of my style. You might find it a bit yuck. There's certain other things that I find a bit yuck, certain expressions of preaching or way that people say the Holy Spirit must move. I find some of those things difficult. But you know what is the key? This is true spirituality. is taking care of the poor and giving yourself away. And so there's some that are going to have a yuck factor for me that are blessing the poor. There's some who, who are going to I'm going to enjoy their style and they, they too are blessing the poor and they are, have a heart for, for the lost. And what is right? Well, I've just got to get over some of my yuck factor. So do you. So we can see the kingdom come. Why did Jesus say then if he was so, you know, I mean the Pharisees, they were serious about their relationship with God. They were really trying hard to please God. They really were. Genuinely they were. And why, was, why did Jesus then say in Matthew 5.20, why did he say this? I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the, the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of God. Why, what did Jesus mean by that? Why did he say to Nicodemus, you have to be born again? You must be born from above. Why did he say that? I think Jesus was saying, your attempts at blameless living, your attempts at... Uh, these things that you are pursuing with all of your heart, with such effort, it's not enough. In fact, you're aiming at the wrong target. He, wanted to, he was trying to say to the Pharisees and the Sadducees that they needed to believe the gospel as well, and they needed to believe that righteousness was apart from the law, and righteousness came through the person of Christ by faith and in nothing else. And Paul had that revelation. This Pharisee of Pharisees, Philippians 3 19, the most powerful verse 9 most powerful portion, he says this, for his sake, whose sake? Christ's sake. I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Jesus. All you need to do is believe in Jesus and at that point you are made righteous. You are justified before the throne in heaven. That is the gospel. That is scandal. That is scandal. You mean you don't have to do anything? No, you don't have to do anything. But I want to say this. I believe that that's the, the entry gate. And what God has for you is much, 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 much more than just being saved. He wants a relationship with you. He wants intimacy with you. He wants you to walk by the Spirit. And that's, He calls us. He's been calling us for the last couple of years to say, Will you walk with me? Will you walk with me? Will you walk by the Spirit? So, that actually is a very long introduction to say a very simple point. That I believe, the more and more I've thought about it and prayed into it, that the thing that opposes the preaching of the gospel the most is not our culture. And for years I preached around culture and that our culture is not conducive to the gospel. There is truth in that. But the thing that opposes the preaching of the gospel more than anything else is the spirit of religion inside the church and outside of the church. That's what opposes the gospel, a religious Spirit. Now I want to just say this. I want us to look. I want to ask some questions this morning, and I want to say to you, if I was preaching this without having considered these questions myself for my own life, then I too would just be a Pharisee and putting stuff on you. I don't want to do that. I have wrestled through these things. I continue to ask these questions of my own life, and I want us to look around the thing of religion. What is a religious spirit? What does it mean? What does it look like? I don't want us to get all introverted and all oh, worries me. At the same time, I don't want us to get all judgmental like the Pharisees and point finger, oh, I see something in you. Oh, a, Oh, that's real, yeah. No, no, no. Just look in your own heart, all right? <laughs> Just let the sword of God go through your own heart. Don't worry about anybody else. Helen and I have had this thing we've started saying, well, I've started saying in our, in our marriage. You don't have to be the Holy Spirit to me. There's one Holy Spirit. His name is Jesus. G- He's the Holy Spirit. If we try and change each other, What's going to happen? Chaos. Just You're going to hurt each other. We, so must we pray for each other? Yes. Do we love each other? Yes. But Helen cannot be the Holy Spirit to me. There's one Holy Spirit. I cannot be the Holy Spirit to her. There's one comforter. One who leads us into all truth. does Doesn't that set you free? Well, it should set partners free. To be yourself, to be responsible for your own relationship with God, not to put anything on your spouse, to keep them free, and together, we, as we grow to, up in Christ, we grow closer together anyway. Amen? Okay. Ten things about religion. I want to ask you to ask these questions yourself. Uh, the first thing I see, I've, as I've just looked at this, those things of the, of, of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, religion, the spirit of religion refuses to embrace change. It refuses to embrace change. There's freedom in the Holy Spirit. God is yesterday, the same yesterday and... Forever, but He's always doing new things. His mercy is on you every morning. And Jesus said the, the, the Holy Spirit is like the wind. It blows. You can't see where the wind is coming from. You don't know where it's going to end, but there's a, there's, you can see the effect of the wind blowing in the treetops. You can see the effect of the Holy Spirit. There's a sense that the Holy Spirit brings freedom. And what is in all of us is our flesh. And our flesh likes to control things. Why? Because when you're in control, you know what you are you've got management over over your life and you've got management over your future if you're in control right and we know what we can control there's the old saying better the devil you know than the devil you don't you remember that that's you see but when god brings change and when god brings change into a, a believing community it's incredibly unsettling and you feel like you no longer have control everything's up in the air there's no found and god is just bring, god is bringing change and we become vulnerable when we're going through change and we, in fact, disempower ourselves when we're going through change and we allow the Holy Spirit to take control. So when I said three years ago, two years ago, God is calling us to walk by the Spirit, that is incredibly disempowering. It's saying, I'm taking my hands off. I I'm God, you must build the church. I, I'll cooperate with you, but not in the same way. I want you to build the church. We want you to build the church. It's incredibly disempowering. And so now we've relooked at the, facilitating home groups and deacons and uh, all that stuff, it's incredibly unsettling. It's like, well, what, are you, what is God saying? Do, do we, are you guys Do you know anything? You hear what I'm saying? It's incredibly unsettling. And I want to say this, it's then we need most the Spirit of God when we're going through change because your relationships are tested when you're going through change and there's vulnerability and we need the Holy Spirit more than ever. And I want to say to you, I've seen this in my own life, that the spirit of religion in me resists change It's like i just dig dig my heels in not so fast it's true so how are you at embracing change what changes is god bringing to your life what what changes god challenging with in terms of your walk with him or your relationship with your wife your husband your relationship with your kids how are you embracing change? Is it the easy thing? Is it a difficult thing? I think at least we should ask the question, we should say, Lord, help me. And what does God say? He says, when you humble yourself, he'll give grace. He'll extend grace to you. He'll make it easier for you. When you resist him, he resists you. I'd rather humble myself. <laughs> Secondly, religion is essentially Selfish. It's essentially a religious spirit is essentially a selfish spirit. It puts me at the centre. It puts others on the periphery. It says things like, What's good for me? It says things like, How can I most benefit from the situation? It says things like, What will require the root of least resistance for me? That's a religious spirit. That's what Jesus was so He fought so much with the Pharisees, because they did what was good for them, not for the people that they were serving but for them. That's the complete opposite of agape love that God calls us to. says, I want you to love each other with that kind of love. It's, it's, it's when you give yourself away without re- expecting anything back at all, without expecting anything in return. It's, it's not focused on self. It's focused on others. That's what agape love is. I had to ask myself this question. How much of my self-talk, you know your self-talk when you're hitting a golf ball, when you're playing squash, or when you're running, how much, how much of your self-talk is concerned with you? and your family, and your needs, and, oh, God, I've got so many problems, and, oh, it's all me, 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 me. How much of of your self-talk, how much of my self-talk is concerned with others? Lord, how can I give myself away? How can I be a blessing to someone who's sick? How how can I help? What can I I put my hand to that's going to break open something for somebody else? Not just me. Thirdly religion, thirdly, religion, it doesn't empower others. It doesn't empower others. You see? When you're religious, you want to keep your position because everything else threatens you. So, in fact, religion, once you're part of a religious system, you hold on to your position because you want, and you want, you want the system to keep going because you look good in the system. One of the things we felt God challenge us in the last couple of years is, no, He wants the priests to arise. He wants every one of you as priests and me as a priest to arise. I have gifts that you don't have. You have gifts that I don't have. Surely we are all equal before the cross. Surely we are all sons and daughters saved by the blood of Jesus. Surely we can celebrate the gifts that are in this body without getting hung up about who's doing what. Does that sound like good news to you? It is. It means I don't have to do everything because I can't do everything and the guys that have been leading home groups or facilitating various areas of ministry, they cannot do everything because you know why? We are not all good at everything and that's why we need each other. That's why we need a team of people that say, I love Jesus with all my heart. I don't care what I'm called. I'll discover in heaven one day what I am. Right now, I'm happy to give my heart to you, to love you, to serve you because that's what Jesus did. And by the way, he died pelliness, propertyless, and naked. (laughs) Perhaps there's a cost to serving each other. Well, I trust if you are being encouraged this morning, all right? So I want to ask you another question How do you feel about others taking center stage when it's your particular gift? Because that really is the test, isn't it? That's where, is there any religion in me? When someone else is a much, much better preacher than you, and you've got a desire to preach. When someone else is a much, much better worship leader than you, and you've got a desire to lead worship. When someone else is just good at hospitality, and every time, and you long to be better at hospitality, and someone else has just got a gift, how does it make you feel? Do you feel threatened? Do you feel like on the back foot? Or can you celebrate with that person and say, but... You, every time I come for a meal at your house, is just the most pleasurable thing. Thank you for your generous hospitality. Or do you say, no, it makes me look bad? You know what I'm saying? Fourthly, religion embraces subtle legalism rather than bringing complete freedom to people rather than bringing complete... Now, I found this in terms of leading a church, and uh, I know that's changing how we lead. We, we definitely want to try and lead much more in terms of a team context. But, you know, you can you can put subtle legalism on people even when you don't intend because, to, to, to do that. And because I've already talked a little around money, I thought it would be a good, good example to use. Because um, I believe in giving. I believe what... Uh, said out of Ecclesiastes, we should sow and cast our bread on the water. I, I, I believe we're called to give generously. We are called to give out of what we've been blessed with, with joy, without compulsion, not anyone knowing what we are giving. My personal conviction is this, is that the baseline for that should be a 10. And it's, um, I believe that the gospel of grace calls us to more than that. It's, that's why I like the term super tithers, that we actually Start at and we go much further than that in terms of our generosity. I don't believe that we give legalistically, and I don't believe giving like that in terms of finances brings us under the law because that's the other thing I've battled with in the last couple of years. If you use the word tithe, people say you're bringing law on me. Well, I don't think that's true. I'm comfortable to use the word give giving, but I think it should be at least one-tenth, and I've got reasons for saying that. And I I want to say that grace always inspires us to more anyway. Giving like that doesn't bring you under the law if you give generously without compulsion, knowing that God is your provider. Okay? So that should set you free. Right? I also, this is where I don't believe in Malachi 3, and I don't believe in Deuteronomy 28, because I've heard this preached so often, and generally it's preached with guys, with big churches who have A building project, or they have 25 staff members, they've got a big church machine, and now they need to keep the big church machine going. So instead of trusting God and saying, God, you are provider. We trust you with our future. It's subtle law is put on people, and and I've preached Malachi 3, so I'm not without blame. But phrases like this come up. If you do not give, you cannot rebuke the devourer in your life. Anyone heard that before? Now, is that putting law on you, or is that bringing the gospel of freedom to you? That is putting law on you. Deuteronomy 28, the blessings and curses, I choose life, and if 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 I do this, God has to respond, and he has to do that. No, no, can I just say, this is my absolute conviction, that you are blessed because you are a son of God for no other reason. He pours out his blessing upon you. In fact, how's this for your theology? The scripture says that he pours out blessing on the righteous and the unrighteous. How many many of you have heard this? God is blessing me in my business because I'm a Christian and I give. No, no, no. God blesses pagans in their business and they give nothing. It's not because you give. It's because you are his son that he blesses you or you're his daughter. That should set you free. Amen. Thank you, Andrew. We're all called to a walk of faith. You are called to walk of faith. I'm called to a walk of faith. Pastors, elders, church leaders, we're all called to walk by the Spirit. It's God who's our provision. And I want to say this in terms of, of this economic climate. We as elders, Mike and I, do not want to be a financial burden to this church. You hear me? We don't want to be a financial burden. If we need to go and work, we will work. I'm not scared of working, all right? I'm saying this to you, that Paul says both things are acceptable. Both things are acceptable. I have to provide for my family, and Mike has to provide for his family. Paul was a tent maker, and he, he, he was prepared to go and work and make tents, and at other times in his life, what happened? The Philippian church provided for him. And the, 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 the Scripture is quite clear. 1 Corinthians 9... Paul says, if you preach the gospel, you have a right. To take your salary from the gospel, but it's, it's not a right that you insist on. That's what Paul says. And so there's this beautiful freedom that we have. I have it as I lead. You have it as you give. There's no compulsion on anybody. Does that set you free? Please, does that set you free? I don't want anyone in this church to compulsively give. If, if on the other hand, you believe that grace says you don't have to give, well, in some sense that's true, but then I think you haven't understood grace completely. When you understand how much God has done for you, you just want to respond and give. Amen? So, I, I'm trying to set you free. I, I, I said this in uh, October last year. We don't want compulsive giving. We want free giving. We want people with hearts that are open that just say, God, I love you, and I want to, I, I, I'm giving. All right? So, the challenge is, are, are we happy givers? Are we generous givers? Are we regular givers? Are we givers because God has given all to us? Or do we do it for the approval of others and the subtle kind of, the subtle kind of shoulder tapping of, of those that we want to be seen good, to be doing good too? All right. I had a phrase that I wrote down. Let us all sow our seed happily for the audience of one. Not for me, not for anyone else not for the church system, but for God, <laughs> happily for the audience of one. Okay, have I gone too long this morning? How long have we been going? Does it feel too long? If it feels too long, then I must stop. Okay, right, five. Religion, the spirit of religion is the opposite of private reverence. The spirit of religion is opposite of private events. You see, it's all about religious. the religious spirit is all about managing perception. It's all about, how do I look like in public? All right? That's why Jesus, again, he fought with the Pharisees tooth and nail. Why? Because they wanted to be seen praying in public. They wanted to be seen giving money in public. They wanted to be seen to be tithing and fasting and doing all the right things. And they did nothing to ease the load on the people that needed their load, ease the most. And uh, Jesus looked upon that and said, I don't want that. That's the gospel I'm preaching. So the, the, the thing for me to ask all of us is this, am I a private worshiper? Am I a private prayer? Am I a private lover of God? Or am I only a lover of God, a prayer before God and a worshiper of God in public? You need to ask yourself the same question. Is it really a Monday to Friday thing or is it simply a Sunday thing? You know, I've said this to someone uh, a couple of days ago. You can come and I can come to this church. I can sit down preaching of the word of God. I can enjoy the worship. I can offer my finances and I can actually have no relationship with God whatsoever. That's religion. <laughs> and you don't have to wear a cassock and a, carry a thing, a smoking thing and be religious. No, that's religion. That's religion that needs to be put to death. God wants our hearts. He wants a relationship with us. Sixth, religion uses manipulation and seduction. It uses flattery. I thought of this example. Why, why do you think Jesus was so strong and said, when you're, offering, when you're doing a dinner party, make sure that the person who sits at the head of the table is not the most influential person in the community? Why did he say that? Because It's religion. How can I look most good? My challenge was this: I was just thinking uh, of my own life. You know, do I like to be do I like to be seen by the in the in the company of the right people, the right people, the most influential, or am I happy to give myself away to, to people that actually no one's ever heard of?